You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. And welcome to the Giant Splash. I'm John Shea of the San Francisco Chronicle, and my special guest is Bill Gould, baseball historian, law expert, professor emeritus at Stanford, first African-American Stanford law professor, and what Bill has to say is so relevant in these times, on and off the field. This is so good, we're breaking it down into two parts. Part one, we're addressing how he sees the labor issues with owners and players his role in helping to end the 1994-95 labor shutdown, and living through the racial integration of baseball, remembering Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays. Enjoy part one. We're honored to have an esteemed gentleman on the podcast, Bill Gould, Professor Emeritus at Stanford Law School. In fact, the first African-American law professor at Stanford, and... Bill is the former chairman of the National Labor Relations Board from the mid-90s to the late 90s, meaning he was always the smartest guy in the room. (laughs) But more than that, uh, Bill played a big part in putting an end to baseball's 94-95 player strike that wiped out the World Series. And He's the author of 10 books, including Bargaining with Baseball, Labor Relations in an Age of Prosperous Turmoil which is so appropriate today. And that was an important look at baseball labor relations, and that brings us to our conversation. Well, hi, Bill. Welcome. Thank you, John. Good to be with you. Yeah, well, at at the outset, we must say we see Bill at the ballpark quite a bit, uh, the Giants and A's, and we miss that because there's no game to go to. But when there is a game, he'll... Never misses Red Sox when they come to the Bay Area. Born in Boston, right? Raised in New Jersey. Um, yes. But, Bill, the first question, what the heck is yes. going on with baseball? I mean, we have the owners and players, and there seems to be a res- resolution coming, but for the longest time, nothing. Um, you you know this stuff better than most. Uh, how have you seen this playing out, and what can we expect moving forward? Well, I think for the past... Uh... Oh, 10 years or so, the past uh, uh, couple of renewals of uh, collective bargaining agreements, new, new negotiations, uh, the players have been pushed back a bit and uh, have grown um, uh, dissatisfied to the, uh, you know, if we look back uh, beyond our intervention in 94, 95 with the NLRB, you had uh, the players giving ground on steroids as as they should have uh then you had uh, controls on the amount of money given to foreign players to amateur players to uh you had new uh impediments uh, for free agency put into the collective bargaining agreement so i think you could say that uh, this round was going to be 
very difficult. And, uh, of course, obviously the parties are faced with uh, something that uh, uh, nobody has been uh, faced with uh, before. And uh, uh, there's a great deal of uh, distrust, uh, much like there was uh, in the previous century between the players and the owners. And I think that, uh, meanwhile, uh, in the background is the uh, is the renewal of the uh, new uh, agreement uh, coming up in in 2021, uh, and uh, concern about what a deal here now means for that, and a concern that uh, you know if the, on the players' part, that, and I suppose the owners' part also, that if they get pushed around a lot, uh, this is a sign of what's to come hmm. yeah and and you know through this whole issue players wanted full prorated salaries the owners were slow but finally came around owners wanted longer postseason so they could benefit more with the tv revenue yes. and now it's a matter of 60 to 70 games as we speak but it seems at least they're they're close to a resolution but do, do you have an opinion on how baseball can maybe not be so sensitive to what's going on in the world? I mean, it seems like the NBA is sort of hip to the environment. Uh, baseball has had these long, drawn-out negotiations. we got the pandemic. we got people demonstrating for equality and justice and an end to police brutality. Meanwhile, baseball needs to take this rocky road to this resolution, uh, if indeed there is one. Yeah. Well, baseball, uh, I think in part, uh, this is because... Uh, uh, of the fact that uh, black American players have become so uh, uh, such a, so numerically um, diminished in recent years in in uh, baseball that uh, baseball hasn't uh, has doesn't seem to have been as focused on uh, the big social issues in front of us. Uh, uh, as uh, basketball and even football now. You even have uh, the football owners who are uh, uh, the most uh, conservative right wing of all. You have the commissioner saying, uh, hey, you know, we're concerned about uh, this. We, we join you in, in uh, uh, protesting uh, police brutality and inequities in society. You don't have the, quite the same volume in baseball because uh, – uh, the numbers haven't been there, and baseball has been uh, very uh, backward also in uh, in promoting and advancing uh, 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 black and minority uh, managers uh, mm -hmm. into uh, leadership uh, uh, positions. Dusty Baker, or, you know, a good pal that whom, for whom I have a uh, a world of regard, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, Dave Roberts mm -hmm. who. Uh, had that great stolen base in 2004. <laughs> they are, they're the only uh, minority managers in baseball. So I think that uh, uh, they're a little bit, baseball has been uh, uh, tone deaf. And, uh, uh, you know, if we look at, if we look at the, between, we got involved in 1994, there were strikes and lockouts every time the collective bargaining agreement expired. Uh, between 1972 and 1994. So there are about a half a dozen strikes and lockouts. Uh, you know, you don't usually find that 
in bargaining relationships. And uh, I, I think uh, it's fair to say that the parties on both sides are a little bit uh, tone deaf, and uh, uh, the owners, uh, some of them seemed uh, uh, to be uninterested in having a baseball season this year. And, and uh, I, that would be, I, in my judgment, that would be really harmful to, to the game. Yeah, that is another example of being tone deaf that they claim they could lose less with no baseball than if there were baseball. But still, yes. it, it doesn't appear as if it's 95 or 94, 95 all over again. I mean, that's when baseball walked out on itself in 232 days and the cancellation of the World Series. So what was your role as far as baseball went? I mean, I believe you cast the deciding vote for the injunction that... That ended the strike. Yes. Uh, the um, well, what happened was that, uh, um, of course, we when I I first I got to Washington in the uh, spring of 1994. Um, I remember when I went to the White House. One of my first visits to the White House, um, as the baseball dispute began to heat up, President Clinton said to me, "Boy, if you guys could resolve that." one that make me president for life <laughs> and uh, so we we did get unfair labor practice charges filed with us by the players who said that the owners were not bargaining in good faith uh, in the sense that they had not bargained to uh, a point of impasse uh well uh i was in arizona in the early spring of uh of, uh, two, of 1995 and uh, giving a speech and uh, the charges came into our office uh, immediately uh, two uh, members uh, sided uh, on each side the uh, two Democrats uh, uh, sided with the union and the uh, two Republicans uh, were with the uh, owners and uh, when I got back I found a note on my desk uh, from the mediator uh, the former Secretary of Labor saying can you hold off a little bit because I think uh, that I'm going to be able to resolve this without the uh, involvement of the law? And uh, I called him back and I said, well, you know, we've got to move on this pretty quickly. But uh, if you think you can resolve it, uh, we'll hold off. Well, to make a long story short, uh, uh, President Clinton's uh, counsel, uh, whom I came to know very well those days, the, the late Abner Mikva called me and he said, uh, you know, the, the the mediator really doesn't have uh, the confidence of both sides anymore, so uh, I think you ought to know that and and uh, proceed as you think best. And so we proceeded and voted. I, I cast my vote uh, uh, to uh, uh, find that the owners had not bargained in good faith with the, with the union, and we went immediately into federal court uh, in New York City to get an injunction uh, uh, against the uh, owners uh, to get them to stop uh, uh, bargaining uh, as they had. And uh, we were successful with the uh, judge as she was then, Sotomayor, mm -hmm. now justice on the Supreme Court. We got her to, in a, in a lovely opinion, some people have told me that at that stage of her career it was her finest, but... Uh, uh, to get to grant our injunction. And as soon as we did that, uh, the players agreed to return to the field and they baseball was resumed after a few weeks. And, uh, 
ultimately a collective bargaining agreement was uh, entered into between the parties. And uh, we've had, uh, notwithstanding some of the blips along the way that I described earlier, we've had uh, peace and a good deal of prosperity. Uh, their revenues have been uh, increased 12-fold uh, since uh, that summer of 1995. And uh, uh, they've had a great deal of success uh, for the most part, these past few years, and now we've uh, reached this uh, problem here with the pandemic and the uh, dispute over uh, pay and uh, the number of games that are being played and uh, and the like. I think one thing that, uh, John, that's lurking in the background in terms of 2021 is mm -hmm. that the owners in many of the sports have found the lockout to be a very effective weapon for them. Uh, you know, you, you, in basketball and in football and hockey earlier, uh, what the owners have done when they've been unable to resolve their differences with the union is to lock out the players at the beginning of the year when they can afford to, they, the owners, can afford to take the economic punishment more easily. See, the players... In 1994, in baseball, struck in August because they thought that the owners would see, you know, see their way to agreeing with them because they need the playoffs. That's when they mm -hmm. make their money, and uh, uh, it's all a question of timing. And uh, now we see um, uh, labor law has uh, allowed the owners to uh, use this lockout, and I think the players fear baseball players fear that in 2021 2022 uh, the owners if they're unable to resolve their differences about the future are going to institute a lockout uh on them and uh, the players need to play you know they have such a short short life uh uh in front of them uh, as we can see this year i mean they want to play now because uh, losing one year even one year is critical for a young guy who has athletic abilities because we know that those are going to deteriorate very quickly. We'll be back with more from Bill Gould right after this quick break. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Do you see any similarity between the 94-95 strike and what's going on with baseball lab labor now? Well, I, I do. Uh, I think that um, uh, the, uh, in the sense that uh, the owners are, um, uh, seem to be uh, uh, hell-bent, so to speak, on, on getting something that the other sports have been able to get, and that is uh, the cap. Uh, on uh, their uh, salary, uh, some some uh, limitation on free agency by imposing a uh, cap on what you could get. Of course, you could say that they have a de facto 
cap right now through the so-called luxury tax, the com- competitive balance tax, but but uh, uh, they seem to be re- resurrecting in, in some ways the uh, issue that was there in the mid-90s. Uh, the players, you have new leadership, uh, as you had uh, in the 90s when Marvin Miller was no longer there. And uh, you had a new group come in and, uh, in 1994. And uh, uh, I think the players feel that uh, with new leadership now, they're being, uh, they're being tested. And uh, Manford, uh, we have to remember, was uh, Sealing's right-hand man. Uh, in that 1994-95 dispute, and I think many of the players feel that we've seen this movie before, <laughs> and so uh, so I think that's that's a good part of the uh, a good part of the dynamics, and and uh, uh, that that's that's I'm afraid, to, and that coupled with uh, this uh, thus far uh, untrammeled uh, use of. Uh, of the lockout in other sports and baseball's interest in that and the players fear of that is, is what has, uh, I think, uh, created a great sense of unease today. Well, let's talk a little bit about baseball. The reason we're joined today and, and Bill, how did, how did you fall in love with the, with the game of baseball? Well, I, I when I was, uh, nine years old, uh, uh, and I, uh, Kind of hung out with a group of guys. My my father had no interest in baseball whatsoever. Uh, I don't think we we had a well. We did. I did have a few catches with him. Uh, the uh, I was a we were members of the local Episcopal church, and the priest was a very uh, was kind of a very good athlete. I remember my father and. Father Anderson and myself uh, throwing the ball back and forth to each other and having a catch, but principally it was because of this group of guys that I hung out with, and we, we, I don't know, we decided that uh, this is what we wanted to do. And every day, we got on our bikes. Our mothers made our sandwiches for us. We got on our bikes. We had a bat um, or two. We had uh, uh, we had a few gloves. And uh, we got on our bikes and went three or four miles to the other side of town where there was this field right next to the railroad station. It was called the station field. And we played all day. Uh, this was a group of, you know, there were no, we didn't have any uniforms. But there were no umpires. Great, you know, encourages your sense of being a great hitter, you know, the, no, you can wait for your pitch. And, and we had no umpires. We had no uniforms. We had no, really, we didn't even have uniform spaces between the bases. The bases were sort of where the grass didn't grow. And uh, we, um, we played all day, uh, morning and afternoon. And we talked baseball. We read about it in the newspapers. We listened to it on the radio. Uh, I recall at that time, my father was a little upset with this, but uh, I think I knew every average for every player on all 25, on all uh, 16 uh, teams, eight teams in each league. Um, and uh, uh, it was just nothing. And, and you know, it, it the hotter the weather got, the more I, anyway, I, I, loved, I loved to hit. 
in this hot weather, you know, this, this really humid weather we can have on the East Coast. And um, I can remember that so clearly. And we did this for about three or four years, every day, morning and afternoon. And, uh, of course, I'm very envious of my sons and now uh, my grandchildren who have uh, played uh, uh, regular baseball, schooled by coaches, uh, in regular uniforms because, of course, they're much more well-trained and able than we were. But we loved it. And uh, I can remember uh, uh, some... uh, exploits that uh, I suppose tend to get exaggerated as the years that go on. <laughs> wow, that's uh, that's fascinating. And, you, you know, you were born in 1936. You were 11 when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. 15 yes. when Willie Mays came along to the New York Giants. And yes. Before I ask about the Red Sox, you, I mean, you witnessed and lived through the racial integration of baseball. What in the world was was it like for a young child growing up not far from Ebbets Field or the Polo Grounds, really? Um, what was it like growing up when when these legends were emerging? Yes, yes. Well, you know, the uh, I remember Robinson in particular so clearly because my father, who had no interest in baseball, was interested in Robinson as well. And uh, when Robinson, we... we the, the newspapers didn't carry much information about all the difficulties that Robinson was having in spring training in these southern towns. Uh, uh, there wasn't much that uh, I can recollect reading about this, but the when Robinson, we're all aware that Robinson was looked like Robinson was going to get his chance, and he came to New York, and they played the Subway Series against the Yankees, and my father... He came home that night, and we were sitting at the dinner table, and my father said to me, I see that Robinson knocked one in today. And I said, gosh, you, you never talk about baseball. How do you know this? And it was actually, I, I didn't even know this at the time he said it. And uh, remember Robinson getting that sacrifice fly in the opening game against the Yankees, the Subway Series. And then he um, stayed on and such difficulty with Johnny Sane, who was one of the premier pitchers in the National League at that time with the Boston Braves, and uh, uh, just saw Robinson grow um, uh, into uh, uh, take all the indignities and uh, the taunts, the racist taunts. Uh, I remember the St. Louis Cardinals uh, saying that they were going to play on the same field. They're going to spike him. Wow. Uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't going to let him play. And uh, the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, Ben Chapman, uh, sending a black cat out and uh, calling him the N-word from the uh, dugout. You know, um, we have a lot of, you know, racial discrimination, as we know, from uh, uh, every day that we're alive in America is, is very much alive in America. It's a cancer in America. Yeah. But it doesn't really compare with what these men went through. Uh, not to be able to go into the same hotel, the same restaurant as your fellow members uh, on the uh, on the road, uh, having to stay 
uh, in the in another part of town, the black part of town. Um, and uh, Robinson uh, abided by Branch Rickey, Branch Rickey, the uh, general manager, president of the Brooklyn Dodgers, his instructions to 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 not to fight back, turn the other cheek, and he did that the first couple of years that he was there, and then he finally uh, uh, began to uh, become more confident and speak for himself, and that was the year, 1949, that he his batting average went up from about 296 uh, the two previous years to 342. And, uh, of course, Robinson, like so many of the players, uh, black players who came up, was a little bit older than he would have been had he received uh, the opportunity in the first uh, instance. So that wasn't true of Willie Mays. He was a, he was still a young player and fortunately was able to enjoy a very long career. And uh, I can remember the big thing about Willie Mays was uh, uh, we used to hear in New Jersey, we used to hear that there were kids that would uh, play stickball with him, um, uh, you know, before the game or after the game and, when the on a day when the team wasn't playing, and we, well, gee, how could we be part of this? <laughs> and you know, we were so envious of these kids uh, playing uh, stickball with uh, Willie Mays, and uh, you know, so much you you remember the, the the basket catches, you know, the basket, the idea of uh, catching the ball like that, uh, let alone catching it over your head as he did with the long drive of Vic Wirtz uh-huh. uh, in 1954, uh, uh, you know, the best catch was so unusual. Uh, uh, these guys brought a flair to the game that that wasn't there. You know, Robinson, with his great speed, his his base running, you know, you do everything. And, and this is the way Willie was. Um, they were truly uh, uh, multidimensional uh, players and uh, – uh, regrettably, uh, uh, so many of the other uh, black players uh, never got a chance, and uh, even when, even after Jackie and Willie came there, never got a chance because of the quota that was imposed mm-hmm. upon all the teams. All the teams imposed upon the players; they didn't want uh, more than uh, two, and you didn't begin that wall begin didn't begin to crack until uh, the sixties and. Uh, uh, and of course, the Red Sox, my team, as it turned out, uh, were the greatest defenders of all. They could have had Willie. They had a scout down there who looked at Willie, and uh, uh, they could have had Jackie Robinson. Uh, I didn't know any of these things at the time when I was a kid, um, and uh, read about them uh, read about them subsequently. Yeah, the Red Sox didn't integrate until 1959 with Pumpsy Green, who who I got to know pretty well later in life uh, from the East Bay, a great yes. person. But but that was 12 years after Jackie broke the color barrier, and it's well yes. chronicled that they scouted Jackie and Willie, like you said, and rejected both. I mean, really? Um, yeah. That, that had well, a lot know... to do with the bad teams the Red Sox had at Fenway for a lot of years afterward, and um, Absolutely. That, that, that must have been troubling times being a kid when right, when right. when the team wouldn't even integrate. I mean, and and uh, and you you love the Red Sox. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, I often say that 
life is timing. And had I become a baseball fan in 1947 rather than 1946, hmm. I would have been a Dodger fan. <laughs> of course, I would have had difficulty here in the Bay Area. But uh, I would have uh, become a Dodger fan rather than a Red Sox fan. But I was already locked into the Red Sox. I didn't know that the uh, uh, Red Sox uh, how you know ha- had had these chances and passed on some of the really great players. And it didn't become obvious to me until um, the Red Sox became bad in the, you know, beginning around 1953 or so. The Red Sox descended into the second division and were perennial also rands. Uh, between 1946 and 1951, uh, the Red Sox were right up there, uh, 1948, 1949, missing on the very last day. Uh, and uh, uh, real contenders until the uh, until about 1952, and then you you know suddenly you see the Yankees with uh, Ellie Howard. They they had a had a guy named Vic Power, whom they, the Yankees the, the Yankees were almost as bad as the Red Sox yeah. in the, in those days in terms of racial right. exclusion. But they didn't want they didn't want Vic Power because Vic Power. Uh, dated white women, and uh, Rick Power was considered to be uh, uh, flashy. They thought so, but then they got Ellie. Ellie was very stolid, solid, and uh, uh, great defensive player. Great hitter, you know. He could hit home runs. You know, think of that period of time. Just as Tony Canigliaro could hit them so high and deep, Ellie would hit them. Clothesline, line drives, you know, that if the outfielder couldn't get back there, outfielder just couldn't get back there on time to uh, <laughs> to grab it because it hit so hard and fast. And, uh, uh, yeah, we didn't have any uh, uh, black players. And we didn't really get, the Red Sox didn't get good black players until the right. impossible dream in 1967 when we had uh, Reggie Smith and uh, Joe, Joe Foy. And uh, uh, we and uh, Jose Tarnable, uh, we didn't we didn't have anything. And even then, we had uh, uh, traded away really because he stood up for uh, against segregation in Winter Haven, Florida. Uh, Earl Wilson, who was a fine pitcher and uh, a fine uh, hitter. Well, how did your love of the Red Sox begin, anyway? Well, it began because. Uh, 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 in 1946, uh, we're playing every day and we say, you know, we're reading the newspapers. We ought to support our own teams. And I, I, and I was surrounded by all of these very aggressive, confident Yankee fans, uh, who thought that all I would hear about, uh, I can remember hearing the radio blasting away on the back porch of my neighbors talking about Joe DiMaggio and. Phil Rizzuto and Charlie Keller, and uh, I said, "Wait a minute! I I was born in Boston. Um, uh, I'll uh, and the Red Sox open the newspaper. The Red Sox are running away with the pennant uh, for the first time uh, in a long time. The Red Sox haven't won a pennant huh. since 1918, and so uh, I said, well, 'I'll be a Red Sox fan because they're that's where I'm from. That's where.'" Uh, uh, they're very successful, and also 
I can't stand these Yankee fans who are so uh, arrogant and full of themselves. That's pretty good. We, we talk about today's players, Mike Trout, the five-tool genius that he is. You know, we, we, we say, well, the comparisons to, to Mays and Mantle. But also a fellow named Mookie Betts, who, who might be closer to Mays in, in, only because, you know, the body type and the five-tool prominence. Uh, <laughs> Red Sox, here we go, back to the Red Sox. I mean, an MVP a couple of years ago, one of the very yes. best overall players in the game, maybe number two to Trout. Um, yes. But what kind of yes. system do we have? More specifically, what kind of organization is Boston that Mookie Betts, in his prime, can be traded instead of signed long-term? Now he's a Dodger, and they'll need to reach a deal here before Betts can even play a game for the Dodgers because he's a free agent after the season. But you have some some thoughts on this, don't you? Well, I, I, I'm very... Uh, angry and saddened uh, simultaneously about the trade of Mookie. I mean, Mookie is a, a once in genera- a generation player, I, I believe. And uh, uh, I don't believe the Red Sox has, have made uh, 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 as big a mistake in terms of players that were on their roster since uh, selling Babe Ruth yeah. after the 1919 season. Uh, this is. This is uh, tragic, uh, uh, of tragic dimensions, and uh, and the, the guy can do everything. He can, uh, he can, uh, you know, he's just a joy to watch in the field, and he's uh, so willing to run balls down that you know, right up against uh, the barriers, and uh, to do. He can play, if we didn't have Jackie Bradley, he could be playing a beautiful center as well as uh, a right field. And also, um, uh, you know, he seems like, I mean, you never really, uh, most people never really know uh, players unless you have a a sustained sustained, uh, friendship with them. He seems like a a really good person. And uh, uh, I, 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 I love to converse with him. I love to uh, uh, to see him and uh, to say hello in the morning when I'd be out at the park and watching uh, batting practice to say hello to him. He's just a very nice person and uh, a real, you know, this this word role model is overused, but uh, I think he would have been a ro- wonderful role model. Well, I think that uh, I don't know what to say in terms of the Red Sox ownership. Obviously, I'm bitterly disappointed and critical of them. They they have represented a real break with the past, I think, uh, uh, in terms of uh, their uh, uh, attitudes uh, uh, on uh, on race, their, their, uh, uh, their hiring of a number of black players, their uh, involvement with the black community, minority communities in, in Boston. But um, uh, this, uh, I'm afraid, kind of blots that out. Uh, it's, this is truly unforgivable. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Giant Splash, part one with Bill Gould. Stay tuned for part two coming up soon. Bill addressing the dwindling numbers of African-American players in the majors and what should be done. Whether owners always will have the luxury of the antitrust exemption and the remarkable story of Bill's great-grandfather, 
William B. Gould I, an American hero who escaped from slavery, fought in the Civil War, and wrote a diary that his great-grandson turned into an incredible book. The Giant Splash is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Podcast producers are King Kaufman and Alan Johnson. The theme song, Batter Up, was written and performed by Lauren Gold and Ray Eastless. Support The Splash and all of our great journalism by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.